the word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the gift of Scripture, for the fact that you have given it originally into history, that you have preserved it, that you constantly teach it to our hearts. We ask again that you would open our eyes and let us be uh, come face to face with the implications of what you have spoken into history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to move from the actual act of the call of Abraham to the covenant itself. The act, of course, was in, in, in the 12th chapter, and the covenant uh, is basically in the 15th chapter. Um, one of the things that I do want to mention, though, if you'll turn in the notes to page 26, um, <clears throat> before we leave some of the big ideas, um, if you notice in the notes, <clears throat> pages 24, 25, and 26, I've tried to isolate three, three basic ideas that uh, uh, are very prominent in this part of Scripture. Uh, one of the ideas, of course, is that this represents an end of an era. Genesis 12 is the end of the old order. And it was that old order that was the last time that you can accept revelation in a culture outside of Israel. In other words, from now on, the center of action of God's Spirit is with the culture of Israel and Abraham and his seed. So the old order is, is just old. It's phasing away in history at this time. Then on page 25, I mentioned that the... We, we mentioned the exclusivism. Um, the fact that God excludes paganism from any consideration. It's just simply not considered. And this is quite offensive because what it says uh, on page 25, the second paragraph from the bottom, this is the offense of the Bible. What it says is from this point forward in history, God would reach out to the world only indirectly through Abraham's progeny. Here is the biblical repudiation of every non-Israelite religion. Every religion outside of Israel, except for possible remnant survivals in the way of faith, is formed by human work built upon depravity. So, that's the answer. And this is not a happy answer for our time. Our age doesn't like to hear that kind of an answer. It's not politically correct. It's not nice. But that's the answer the Bible gives. And the answer the Bible gives is justified morally and spiritually because all people started with knowledge. Everyone came out of the sons and daughters of Noah. So they haven't got the revelations because their own historic destiny um, suppressed it. But, lest we become too exclusive, as on page 26, the third truth we want to get across is that here's where missions begin. I quote Dr. Peters there, and also Genesis 12, 1-3, that Abraham was told to go forth out of his country, but the whole purpose of going forth out of his country and out of paganism to become this separatistic, exclusivistic culture is to groom it for a blessing back to the world. So there is a order here. A sort of cycle that we want to observe 
And keep this in mind as we go through the rest of the Old Testament because it's easy to get uh, off on tangents. That what you have is, is you have paganism. You have Abraham called out of that over into a special, maybe a, a greenhouse here of faith in order to come back to the world system. So far from, and, and this is the other moral side of the coin, the exclusivism that is so detestable to our relativistic age is actually good news. Because had Abraham not been called out of paganism, you couldn't breed a body of purified revelation that could be then put back into the world. You've got to come out of the world to get the purity that you need to go back into the world with. And it's that cycle. And it's here where missions begins, not in the New Testament. Missions implicitly begin once God breaks from the rest of the world. So you may never have thought about this before, but missions begins in Genesis 12. It begins with a, with a restriction of the truth to some subset. So obviously, if the truth is restricted to a subset of people, and God wants to bless the other people, then the people who have the truth have to go out to the people who don't have the truth. The message has to go out. So, even though it's not strongly pushed here, uh, we have centuries of scripture, you know, to see the outgrowth of this. This is the root of missions, right here. Now, let's come to the uh, covenant, and if you'll turn in the Bible tonight to um, Genesis chapter 15. Again, I urge you, if you have an easy-to-read translation you're comfortable with, to speed-read through Genesis um, so you can get, get the flow. Because this is not a course on Genesis, and so we can't get into all the neat little things that happen. We're highlighting things as we go through. Now, we said, if you'll hold the place in Genesis 15... Um, I want you to turn back to Genesis 9, because that was the other covenant. And if you'll kind of flip between the two, let's do some observations here tonight. See how much we can see uh, different and parallel too. In Genesis 15:7, this begins the address. And this, and this, all the way down to the end of, of chapter 15, beginning in verse 8. Now, notice as you skim down here, who's doing the speaking, who's doing the listening, and what is being said. In verse, verse 8, he says, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? Abraham has a question. And so God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. 
But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a old, good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Kenan, the Gergesite, and the Jebusite, naming all the peoples of that land who will be displaced. Now notice who it is given to in verse 18. To your descendants I have given this land. If you turn back to Genesis 9, God spoke to Noah and to his sons, and he said, I establish a covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. And the content of that is in verse 11. The content is the sign of the covenant and the fact that uh, no flesh will be cut off by water. All right, comparing first... What do you see um, as the group to which the covenant is made? Thinking in terms of the addressees of this. In one case, the covenant is made with whom in the Noahic situation? Made with everyone, including the animals. So it is a universal covenant. There's the universalism. It's a universalism of preservation. And it says, I will, I will persist, I will, the environment is stable. The earth has gone into a steady state. And the environment is stable. The human race will survive. There's not going to be an intergalactic war. There's not going to be an asteroid collision with planet Earth. The earth is a perfectly safe place to live on forever. So there's a continuity promised in the way of covenant. And it is given to everyone. Now in, you come to Genesis 15, and it's a little different. Now it's Abraham and his descendants. And furthermore, there seems to be some nasty implications in verse 18 and 19, because in verse 18 and 19 it says, I have given this land. Then in verse 19, 20, and 21, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 different subsets of peoples are said to be displaced. So, this covenant looks like it's going to be a little messier than that Noahic covenant. First of all, it's an exclusivistic covenant, only with Abraham and only with his descendants. And secondly, it looks like there's going to be some displacements going on here. So, that's the first kind of thing we can observe. We also... Um, See, earlier, up in the text, uh, when Abraham was talking about, uh, you'll see in, in the question, verse 8, was, how many Noah shall possess the land? Came out of a conversation he was having with God earlier. And in verse 1 of chapter 15, where God promises to be his shield, Abraham said, O Lord, what you give me, since I am childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Remember, what were the three things that God had said he was going to give him? Land, seed, and, a, and be a worldwide blessing. And it isn't looking like it's working out, at least by chapter 15. 
And so Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Now that's, he's not, he's not inventing that statement. That's normal. That's the normal operation here. So I want you to see the fact that something's different about this Abrahamic covenant because it's the only way you can interpret it and wind up in sanity without going into a case of split schizophrenic interpretation. What you want to see here is that it comes out of a helpless situation. He doesn't have the physical seed that he is supposed to have. And so he doesn't have the land he is supposed to have. And he certainly isn't any worldwide blessing. So all three of those things look pretty hopeless. If you notice how God answers him, verse 4, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So in verse 4 then, what is God in essence saying? God, Abraham's statement in verse 2 is, I am childless. In verse 4, God says, one who will come forth from your body is your heir. So what in effect is God saying? How is the seed going to come about? By some miraculous way. Now that's a primary observation. Stick that one away. Make a note about it. This is critical to the interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant as it goes on through the stages of scripture. That this is not just simply promising the guy's going to have a lot of kids. It's not simply promising that. From the very first child born to Abraham, this is a miraculously produced seed. So the children and seed of Abraham visualized in this covenant aren't just physical, normal, everyday children. The seed of Abraham have a remarkable miraculousness about it. And we have to be careful here. And here's why I'm stressing this tonight. Look, maybe I can digress just a moment to explain. Some of you have been around in scriptures several years. You know what I'm talking about. The tendency is that we see this and we come to the New Testament. And the New Testament says we're all the children of Abraham. And we like to spiritualize our interpretations of the Old Testament text and say, oh, well, there are the physical children of Abraham and then there are the spiritual children of Abraham. Now, we all know kind of what we're trying to say there. But I warn you about something. If you start right here, the very first redemptive covenant in the Bible, and you're starting to spiritualize to make it work for the New Testament, we're going to be spiritualizing our way through the whole Old Testament. And the Old Testament wasn't made to be spiritualized. The, all the little boundary markers and the genealogies and all the legal documents, all that's talking about something physical. So we have to be careful of the hermeneutic that we're using to read this literature. And the way you learn how to interpret the literature is to learn particularly when it sets things up, the first place where the setup occurs. Watch it right there. The setup from the very beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, this seed promise is being fulfilled in a miraculous way. And you will see this theme perpetuated down through Scripture. So two things to remember now. The seed are physical descendants of Abraham. We'll have to, have to deal with another problem here, obviously, in a moment. But you, you can't spiritualize it. He's talking about people that come out of his body. 
So we're talking about a physical link. That's number one. But the second thing, and closely allied to this is, is that though the seed comes out of his physical body, it's somehow miraculously produced thereby. So you've got these two things, and this begins to color our interpretation of the Old Testament in the light of the New. And, and it, it's not, not inventing some new way of reading the literature, it's being straightforward about it. Let me show you something else. Hold place in 15 a minute and come back. You can forget about Noahic Covenant. I think we've covered that. So we won't have three hands holding things. Um, if you come over to Genesis 12, there's something else that you need to see. There appears to be a logical conflict here. Maybe I can draw it with a diagram that looks like this. Um, Abraham is going to produce a seed. The world out here, the worldwide blessing, the world is going to be blessed, and there's a code in there, blessed in Abraham. Now, the question is, that this diagram raises, what happens to people who are not the physical seed of Abraham? What about Egyptians? What about Japhetics? What about everybody else that's in that table of nations in Genesis 10 that physically do not come out of Abraham. Or that is this promise then? Does this mean the Abrahamic covenant totally isolates the world? Does it mean then that only a subset of Jews are to be blessed out of this? You see, there's a, there's a whole thing here that we have to deal with. And if the world is going to be blessed in him, but the blessing is going to come through the seed, there's a mystery here. This is not well answered in the Old Testament, how this is going to take place. Now, you can say in some degree it can take place because uh, can anybody, for example, name a major blessing to the world that was given to the world by 1000 B.C.? And we're heading rapidly toward it in the Bible. What is, what is something that practically every civilized society harps back to today? to structure themselves with. And they got it from the Bible. Hmm? Ten Commandments. Mosaic Law. So that's one example of how something that comes out of the physical lineage of Abraham is a blessing to the world, and the world gets blessed through the produce of Abraham. But that still doesn't explain that if the real blessing is in the seed, how do non-seed become seed? I point this out to you because it's not really answered in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's answered in the following way. It's answered that fact that down the seed eventually comes miraculously. So the first seed here is Isaac. So there you have something miraculous going on. Then down through history... Finally, you end in Jesus. And does he get produced miraculously? Yes, he does. Is he out from the seed of Abraham? Yes, he is. Is he a physical descendant of Abraham? Yes. But isn't he a miraculously produced physical seed of Abraham? Yes. So you see, the theme from Isaac to Jesus is always the same way. There's this funny way God works. It's through Abraham 
But it's miraculously through Abraham. It's not a natural fallout or a natural work that's happening here. Then, how do we become children of Abraham to share in blessings? How do we do that? What in Galatians does Paul say? We are adopted. So we, through Jesus, become adopted into Abraham. Now, are we, are we linked physically? Yes, we are, because we're being adapted legally in one who is of the physical lineage of Abraham. So we can refer in the New Testament to, quote, the spiritual children, if you'll just remember when you use the word spiritual children, you're not talking about some mystical link with Abraham. I'm trying to save the literalness of the covenant. That's what we're trying to do here tonight. So be careful. The covenants are all pieces of legal literature and have to be interpreted very carefully or we lose controls. So there's the structure of the seed and there's the structure of the land. And obviously the land has a certain place. I mean, here we are. This is, this is the land. Now that land means that other people have to be kicked out and the seed have to occupy. Now that's a theme that goes all the way on to the end of the Bible, isn't it? Who is ejected from the earth? Who does not have a place in the New Jerusalem? Who is it that's always excluded? It's always the unbeliever. It's always those who refuse to submit to God. They are the ones who are always get booted. The ones who go in and enjoy the promise are the believers. So this is a theme that starts now and goes all the way through to Revelation. And it all is structured on this Abrahamic covenant. So what we're working with here is just a few texts of the, of the Old Testament, but this is the setup for the rest of the Bible. It's one of the most eloquent arguments in my mind for the inspiration of Scripture, that there's this inherent continuity and coherence to the Bible. Well, let's look at uh, some features of this. On page 27, I remind you at the top, to the second paragraph there where I said God's covenant labor and defines his program. We've, we've labeled this whole section of material as a disruption this year. Like last year we were saying what we're dealing with is, is truths of paganism that were buried literally and psychologically. Now this year we're talking about truths that disrupt in other words, pagan civilization goes on, history marches forward, and there seems to be this constant interruption, constantly disrupting the flow of sinful man from the outside. Abraham's call is an interruption to Abraham's life, isn't it? He's disrupted in his business. He's interfered with. All of a sudden, he gets jerked around and moved out of where he was comfortable, where he developed his business, and he moves to who knows where. That's a disruption. Because the theme here is always when God, God is on the outside because man has chosen to put him on the outside of the system. So when God speaks, he naturally has to, since he's speaking from outside the system, he has to disrupt the system in order to address it. So from here on out in the rest of the Bible, the calls of God and the truth of God are disrupting truths. Well, what we want to see is that this is a contract. 
And we specified back last year, we dealt with the Abrahamic covenant, that we're dealing with a contractual arrangement. And if you use the word contract, it sounds less religious, probably safer, because we're less, <clears throat> we have less of a baggage to that word. <clears throat> but that word is the same word as used in the scriptures. It's the word for, for a contract that, in the same sense that a businessman would make a contract. There's no difference. In fact, if you hold a place, turn to Jeremiah 34. Here's an example of how businessmen would, uh, when they got into very serious negotiations, would, would uh, inaugurate a contract, or politicians. So this is centuries after Abraham, and it's still going on. God is talking here in language which would have been understood. The same process in Jeremiah 34, 18, 19, 20. Here it's referred to the society at large, the people at large, at the time of the end, of the collapse of the kingdom. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. So there's a contractual arrangement, and the way the contractual arrangement worked was they would cut these animal pieces in half and walk between them. So. What we want to point out is that, first of all, a contract comes into existence, like we said last year, when a relationship has to be verified. In other words, a contract is a way of verifying behavior. Isn't that what a contract does? All the stipulations you've ever done, seen in the contract, isn't it verifying? Isn't it offering measurements, yardsticks, so you can tell whether or not somebody's kept their promise? So the Bible now, at the beginning of salvation history, as we know it through Abraham, lays the whole plan of salvation out in contractual form or legal literature. And that's why it's so important to remember what Albright said, and I quote him on the bottom of page 26, that the Hebrews were the only people in world history to make a contract with their God. Of course, he got it a little backwards. It's the only people that God made a contract with. But that's profound because Albright knew ancient history very well. He was an eminent professor right here in Baltimore. Excellent scholar. And that's his observation. He says, I've studied all of world history. And he, he says, well, I haven't been able to find one case in world history where there's ever been a culture or a people who have entered into a contract with their God. That's pretty stunning observation. But if you think about it, it makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because on a pagan basis, who would you make a contract with? Which God's on the chair today? Joe or George? 
You make a contract with George, how do you know next week he's going to be on rainy? Maybe Joe's bumped him out. If you have a polytheism, you haven't got stability because you never know who's top dog tomorrow. That's why only in monotheism can you make a contract that's stable. Because you don't have musical chairs. And you remember last year we said what happened? What, is, what does paganism always gravitate to? See, they got a problem. Pagans always have had a problem. They have a God here and a God here and a God there and a God somewhere else. In fact, Abraham came out of a place that worshipped the God of the moon. Ur was a center, and where Haran, with the second place he went, that was another cultic center for the moon god. So in both cases, it's apparently clear that Abraham and his grandparents were very close to the lunar cult. Now, if that's the case, and they're worshipping a moon god, who was considered very unstable, by the way, because the phase of the moon changes, well, why would you want to enter a contract with an unstable party. You don't do business with somebody who's going out of business tomorrow. You do business with somebody who's going to be around for a while. Or you don't bother and sign the contract. So that, in a small way, is why the Bible says, only here do you have the basis for a contract, because only here do you have a God big enough to make a contract with. Pagans, when they finally deal with a musical chair problem, always go to this solution. And last year you mentioned it's that one that 2001 Space Odyssey goes to with a little tablet that you see at odd places in that Kubrick film. It always goes to a tablet, table of destiny, or tablets of destiny or fate. That's always the solution the pagan mind gives. How come George rules today and Joe is going to rule next month? Well, I don't know. Joe doesn't know and George doesn't know. All we know is that we're all controlled by this mysterious impersonal fate. This is like the Empire Strikes Back series, the Empire epics. What was God in that epic? A person or a force? He's a force. See? You know what they're doing. This is just pagan thought. It has to go this way. <clears throat> so... The, the basis then for a contract is you have to have an infinite personal God and if you don't have an infinite personal God there's no sense having the contract. But the amazing thing for us as believers is that the infinite personal God condescends to us to let us verify his behavior. Now isn't this an amazing thing? Why do you suppose God does that? Let's think about that for a minute. This is so important. We want to think about this and not let this go... As, as just an interesting fact. Let's think, why do you suppose God condescends through a contractual legal document to lay out to us his behavior that we can measure his behavior? Sounds like it ought to go the other way. And in part later, it does, yes. Exactly. He is condescending to our weakness to trust him. That's what the Bible's all about. When we fight for details, now I want you to get the link here, folks, tonight, because so many people don't see this. When we argue so strenuously for the inerrancy of Scripture, you know what we're arguing for? Debbie just said it. We're arguing for the trustworthiness of God. That's why inerrancy of Scripture is so important. 
If Scripture has errors in it, what happens to this document that's supposed to measure God's behavior? If it's got historical errors in it, we can't verify his behavior. Isn't that what a lawyer does in court? When a witness is on the stand, what does the opposing lawyer try to do? Every case. What's his job? What's he paid to do? To undermine what? The validity of the witness. The believability of the witness. Now, what is the witness in history to God's character? What he promised. Where do we find what he promised? Here. Where do we find the record of his fulfilled promises? Here. If this got errors in it, what happens to the whole case? goes out the window, doesn't it? You see what an eloquently simple argument this is? It is so simple and so straightforward. You wonder, how can people miss this? But that's the story of the Bible. That's why we fundies are so adamant about the inerrancy of Scripture for it to be non-adamant about this is to say, in effect, that we have no yardstick for measuring God's behavior. Okay, now, let's look at this yardstick. And second of all, one of the things we want to say is, not only is it for verifying behavior, but you have to have, and this is important, you have to have an expression in language. And that language has to be plain and interpreted so everybody can read it and understand it. It doesn't do any good to have a set of priests that know God's code words and say, oh, by the way, take it on our authority, God is trustworthy. The great reformation was that we get the pages of Scripture into the hands of every believer so every believer can read it for himself and say, God, you are faithful. I have read your words and you have spoken directly to me through the pages of Scripture. Hence the Protestant Reformation. We don't keep it confined to some sort of uh, academic elite. And this is why we argued last year so strenuously that the early chapters of Genesis can't be interpreted in some obscure hermeneutic, some subset of rules known only to historical geologists. And everybody was wrong before Lyell. Or everybody was wrong before Darwin. You know, these guys came in the last, and they, they, they got it really down, and so we take what they say and say, oh, that's the key to interpreting all the scripture for 1900 years we didn't know. Thank you, Charles Darwin. Do you see what that does? That basically cuts away the scripture again, because it says the law, the measuring stick, isn't for all Christians. It's a very democratic thing here. This contract is, should be linguistically clear to every believer, else every believer cannot have trust that God means what he says. Okay, let's look further at the, at the different parts. We say that this is a contract, and so now we're going to look at the parts of this contract, because the parts are the same four that we saw back in Noah's case. The first case, we have always biblical contracts generally have these four, four elements to them. The first one, we say, is obviously you have to define who the contract is with. So the first element is the parties to the contract. Who are the parties? We just mentioned that this, morning, this evening when we started, and we said that the parties of the contract were God on one hand, Abraham and his seed on the other. No animals, cats, dogs, and all the human race. 
That was the Noahic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant has a specific set of parties to it. Jesus Christ is a party. We happen to be party to the covenant only because Jesus has seen fit to adapt us into himself. That's what Paul means when he's talking in Romans 9 about you know, the tree and the branch and so on. Okay, so we have the parties to the covenant. We define these. This is all clear in Genesis 15. Now in Genesis 15, we wanted, I, had, I read that passage because from verse 9, 10, and 11, and 17. Look at those verses again. That's the signing of this contract. By the way, anybody remember? What's the sign, the signing of the Noahic contract? Rainbow. Remember we said the optical physics of raindrops are, is structured as a finite, three-dimensional, physical projection of whatever it is on God's throne. Because when people get this glimpse of God and His throne, they see something that looks like what we call a rainbow. So what we call a rainbow has been structured to communicate throne glory to us. That the one who sits on the throne of the universe is the one who made the promise of the Noahic Covenant. So now here, this is an advance. Now let's see how sharp we are in observation tonight. The animals are cut, verse 10. And you remember we just got through reading in Jeremiah passage how they, they cut animals. Now let's, what's going on here with this cutting of animals? Look at this. Here's, here's whoever it is, these two business guys, and this is, these are very serious covenants. And so here's this bloody mess of meat on one side and a bloody mess of meat on the other. And they're walking between it. Now, what is going on here? We said the rainbow was a picture of the throne glory of God. What's this bloody mess uh, a symbol of? What do you think? Does this sort of point to something that's going to happen later on? What does this say? Isn't it, first of all, you can catch from what you're seeing here. By the way, in verse 17, um, what, it, it, people, scholars who have studied ancient documents and ancient history note that the smoking oven and flaming torch are two elements that are used for maldatory oaths in the ancient world. Witches use this. There's, there's some translations of ancient materials where they talk about witches cursing people. And they would use this flaming oven actually is, is a, one of these things that you carry around. Uh, it's a small portable thing. And the flaming torch were symbols of cursing. Now, if we accept that, and, and that was the context of those, those symbolic meanings, in this case, we don't have anybody walking between them. Why didn't Abraham walk between them? Uh, what was his medical state? He sacked out. Is that right, right? Verse 12. He's in the same state Adam was when Eve was created. And God wants to make it clear it's his work and not ours. He puts us to sleep. Gets us out of the way. 
So Abraham is not writing. He's not signing on this thing. Well, now, who is signing on? All of a sudden, you have these symbols of maldiction passed between bloody messes of meat. Talk about a dark, scary picture. This is a picture of actual cursing. And what we have here is a curse on him who breaks the covenant. It's an oath of maldiction. This is saying, in effect, to hell with whoever breaks this covenant. May you be slaughtered as these animals. And you talk about a business arrangement. You can imagine how this, why they reserve this kind of uh, operation for serious business. You know, you either keep this contract, buddy, or something bad's going to happen to you. That's what this is all about. This is a threat. Now, the interesting thing is that if it's not a threat to Abraham, because he's not walking through the pieces, who is it a threat to? This is amazing, because later on, God takes the oath. We think this is... Later on in the book of Genesis, God makes an oath. I will swear by myself that I will keep this covenant. What it is saying is that God says, may he be damned if this covenant does not come to pass. How about that one? Isn't that something? This is the God of the universe saying, I will be damned if this doesn't happen. So, right from the start, we get down to some basic facts here. And what's so prophetically... Can anybody catch a little prophetic glimpse of something in this oath of maldiction? Who has made a curse for us? This is a foreview of the Lord Jesus Christ's work. Now, it's not clear there. I mean, we can, yeah, Monday morning quarterback. Yeah, it's clear to us. But the point was that it is embedded in the symbols. It's embedded in the language here. It's all part of this covenant. There's some pretty heavy stuff. To pull off redemption requires heavy business. And it starts by God swearing that he will redeem. And he will never be stopped. The gates of hell shall not prevail against God's sovereign program. He will never be stopped. So, this is good news, because now we've got something to hinge to. See, we're not talking about faith yet. We're going to get that later and last. You can't talk about biblical faith and so-and-so believes, and he's a great believer in the promises and all the rest until you get clear what preceded all this. Now, if you look carefully at Genesis 17, 15, I started with verse 8. And when I read the first part, I ended with verse 6. What verse did I stop and I did not mention? Verse 7. Now let's look at verse 7 a moment. Verse 7 is cited repeatedly in the New Testament. Repeatedly in the New Testament. It's no accident that verse 7 precedes the formal ratification of the covenant. Look at the place of this. You read the New Testament. This is what's so tragic about our time. And I must comment about this, it bugs me that over the years, 
I have had a steady diet in evangelical churches of 98% teaching out of the New Testament. New Testament, Bill has done this, go back into the old and get you some background so you know what you're reading in the new. But the New Testament came after the Old Testament, and it was written originally for people who knew the Old Testament, who pick up these nuances. So Paul had to just quote verse 7, and he would have expected that a good, well-trained Jewish audience would have said, oh yeah, that's what happened before the Abrahamic Covenant. gave them a verse. And they were so sharp, they knew the context of the verses. So we want to get sharp and learn the context. When you see verse 7 in the, in the whoops, verse 6, excuse me. When you see verse 6 in the New Testament, it's repeatedly referred to, understand that it is embedded in the context of the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. And when God entered into this solemn covenant with Abraham, the parties to the covenant were God on the one hand, and Abraham plus his seed on the other, and the issue is how can a holy God enter a redemptive covenant with a sinful fallen Abraham? And the answer is given prior to the contractual generation, the drawing up of the covenant. And it's given here, verse 6, then he believed the Lord. Now, I have to take exception. Many translations use then, as though it's an adverb that's telling you, oh, that's the when he believed. The intent of this then isn't adverbial in that sense. It's saying that Abraham was a believer, and... Keep in mind that he was a believer when this happened. That's the, this is what we call a circumstantial clause in the Hebrew narrative. The Hebrew text has a way of... Uh, you, you'll see this so often in the Old Testament when you read it. So-and-so did something, and so-and-so did something, and so-and-so did something, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. All the verbs are tied with and, 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 and. But then in the text, if all of a sudden you're reading and it says, and this happened, and this happened, stop and then there's a participle form or there's this non-and form of the verb, you, you say, whoa, this is a circumstantial clause. This is something that is a note saying, oh, by the way, while all this is going on, this is true. So that's the sense of verse 6. It's a circumstantial clause that is a commentary that is occurring so that as we read verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, blah, 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 all the way down to verse 20 and 21, it's saying, oh, by the way, while this was happening, Abraham was a person who was a believer. And it was because he was a believer that God counted him as righteous. Now, this is going to be expanded later when we get in the doctrine of justification. But for tonight, just be careful to remember verse 6. The context of verse 6, once again, before the parties can enter into an agreement and one of the parties is perfectly holy, the other party has to be perfectly holy, especially when the topic is, is bringing about salvation. So how can Abraham, who is a fallen sinful person, enter into a contract with God? And the answer is because he trusted God to somehow work it out. 
Abraham had a piece of the gospel available to him in his day. And verse 6 is a comment of what believers looked like then. And Paul says, you know what? Believers looked like then, just like we are today. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross and all the details. But they knew that there was a promised seed that was to come and God somehow would deal with this. So I trust him for it. Just like we look back to the cross and we trust him. Oh, he did that. Well, they didn't have that. So they looked forward and said, he'll do something. So I trust him. So now we have two parts of the covenant that look very interesting, don't we? On this part, we have faith. And on this part, we have a bloody mess. So the gospel is very, very foreshadowed here in the very structure of this covenant. All right, on page 28 in the notes, I mentioned one of the signs that was given, Genesis 17, circumcision. I have four observations to make about circumcision because it recurs in the New Testament and we want to be careful. Great segments of the Christian church have taken circumcision to be a model of infant baptism. And that's been always the argument for infant baptism and so forth and so forth. Well, what we want to see is that circumcision was a ritual of obedience that accompanied the Abrahamic covenant. And I mentioned four things about circumcision there that are theological in nature. Circumcision is not an accident. So let's look at all those four things just quickly in the notes. Circumcision revealed that fallen flesh is present from birth, so it's administered in Israel to infants rather than to adolescents. It's interesting. Paganism has circumcision usually in adolescence, at puberty. Still done in backward tribes. But in the Bible, circumcision was moved from puberty to infancy. Now that was a major move. We don't think of it because we never think about it today. But why was it different? This is a difference. You can read contemporary pagan literature and it reads differently than the Bible here. This is a difference. Why? Because it is a mark that whatever is at stake here, this circumcision is a corrective surgery. It's disruptive. The disruption has to occur all the way back to the infant level. And it's a picture uh, of, basically, I believe it's a picture of the fact that it's saying that infants from birth are sinful. Psalm 51, in case you didn't know. Two, circumcision. And here's another great point, because in paganism, the power of sex is considered to be sacred in the sense that the gods used it to generate the universe. That's why they had all their orgies and everything else. It's not because necessarily they were out for drunken party party time. It was because they actually felt that the power of sexual propagation was related to the universe at large. And that whatever this force was in sex, it was related to cosmic issues, not just personal issues. So they always thought of it as a powerful force, and it is a powerful force. But it's interesting that circumcision identifies an organ of sex as needing surgical modification. Now, what in effect theologically that does, it devalues sex from its pagan pinnacle. In paganism, it's elevated to the high place of being the, the source of creation. And in the Bible, it's demeaned 
There's something inherently wrong with the process. It's fallen. It's disruptive. It needs to be redeemed. So we have there, again, if you look at the thing, and some have thought, and I tend to think so, that it's particularly emphasizing the male sperm rather than the female. Female ovum seems to be a, uh, the one a mother of all living. It doesn't say Adam is the father of all living. It says the woman is the mother of all living. And you have this ovum type thing with a full cell and the male sperm is not really a full viable cell. And so some Christian physiologists have just pointed that out. It's very interesting in Romans 5 and Hebrews 7 it seems to suggest that the identity of the sinful man is propagated through the male. If that's so then it's interesting why Jesus was virgin born. Three, circumcision did not necessarily imply that the child was regenerate. You can have unregenerate, circumcised children in the Bible. The Bible's full of them. And in the story in Genesis, you've got at least Ishmael. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but you can't say that just because somebody went through the ritual, they were automatically redeemed, that they were automatic believers. Finally, and most importantly, the fourth point of circumcision. Circumcision testified to an analogy between surgery performed on the organ of fleshly reproduction, of physical life, and miraculous surgery on the organ of spiritual life, which is the heart. Because in, in, in the Mosaic Law Code, this phrase occurs, and it's picked up by Paul in Colossians. God says, oh, that they would be circumcised in their heart. I have given them this law, but they need to be circumcised in their heart. Why did God say that? Circumcised in the heart? How do you get circumcised in the heart? There must be something inherently wrong with the heart and it needs surgery. If you think of circumcision as a picture of corrective surgery, that something's being corrected that was corrupted, you get the theological picture and overtone. And it's looking forward to this Abrahamic covenant thing. Okay, the legal terms of the covenant, we have established those, the land, the seed, and the blessing. I have stressed the fact that in all three of these, in the notes on page 28 at the bottom, both all three of these, at least the first two, let's go with land and seed, obviously the third one, worldwide blessing, um, is, is worldwide. Each of these has an application to Israel and an application to the world. Application to Israel, application to the world, application to Israel, application to the world. All of three of those have a particular fulfillment in Israel. And all three of them have an eternal fulfillment for all people. Let's go with the land. In the land, you have the outlines of the land geographically given in Scripture in gruesome detail. But you also have the New Jerusalem in the last pages of the Bible coming down where? In the land. So... The promise of the land is to Israel in the Old Testament, but it's also looking forward to the fact that the center of redemption for the cosmos is in this real estate. What it implies is that the planet Earth, when it's recreated in Revelation 22 and 20, uh, 21 22, that it has a form that's very similar to the layout of the land now. And we mentioned last year, remember we gave you that study that ICR had done where a guy took the computer and he sectioned off every piece of land on the earth 
and he had the computer say, okay, if I start with this section and I say, how far is this section away from this section, this section, this section, this section, and I get a number, and then I go here, and I do it again, and I go here, and I do it again, the computer's going to tell me, where can I pick a section on Earth that's closest to all other land areas? And when you ask the computer to do that, you come up with the land between, on the one hand, the exact latitude and longitude, the longitude of the of Israel of uh, of uh, Jerusalem and Ararat area, and then you get the latitude uh, bottom part of the latitude of uh, Jerusalem in the in the Babylon area there, the Middle East. So it's very interesting that just quote happens that that is the mean minimum of land area if you travel on the surface of the Earth. So the land has an application. The seed has obvious physical application to Israel. And it has an application of the adopted sons through Christ. The third one, the worldwide blessing, is obviously a blessing to the world, but it's also an exaltation of Israel above all nations. And I quote on, on the notes on page 29 uh, some of the Psalms. I want you to turn in conclusion tonight to some of these Psalms because they do speak of this worldwide purview. And I have to show you these passages because so many people think that the Old Testament has only to do with a horizon that stops at the Mediterranean. So if you turn to Psalm 100. By the way, just for quick reference purposes to tuck away... We're going to finish this up next uh, two weeks from now. We'll, we'll review this because we're running out of time right now. But I want you to see some of these passages of Scripture for this, these terms of these blessings. Just for your reference, whenever you see a psalm that's in the 90s, these psalms that are clustered at that point in the Psalter are considered to be what they call enthronement psalms. They're all looking forward to the reign of the Messiah over the nations. And there's a big argument about whether they were sung at certain periods of time in, in Jewish history. But in Psalm 100 is a typical one of these in this area. Now look at who it's addressed to. This is a Jewish psalm out of Israel in its heyday. But look who it's addressed to, verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. See, that's not Israel. This is that universalism that's embedded in the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham will be a source of worldwide blessing, and it will be through Abraham. Um, Psalm 126, verse 2. This looks at the universalism, but it looks at the universalism more from the standpoint of the Jew. And Israel. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then, look, who's doing the saying here? Then they said among the nations, who were obviously looking at Israel, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. That, that verse 3 is talking about, is the, the Jewish people speaking, but in the last clause in verse 2, it's the Gentiles. Look what the Gentiles are saying. What is remarkable about that verse? Just test your powers of observation a moment. What's the name for God being is there? It's Jehovah. 
Now, what's so remarkable about this, this is rare. This is a rare piece of scripture where Gentile nations are said to ascribe something to Jehovah. That's the sacred name of God for Israel. So it clearly refers to some time in, in history when Gentiles believe. And they believe that Israel's God is their God. So we could, we could multiply these, but I won't tonight. I'm just pointing out that in this Abrahamic covenant, that's the whole ground and structure now from this time forward, through all the stories in here, if you read through these stories, you'll always, you can judge every single story from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50 in terms of one of these three. Every single story. When Abraham, think of this as a test, just as a test, because we can't unfortunately do this, but if we were to get involved in the details of Genesis, which of these three do you think was involved in the famine issue? They had to go somewhere. They went out of the land. They had to become pilgrims and wanderers. What is the three, what are the Abrahamic covenant, what parts of the Abrahamic covenant are really crucial being tested here? Abraham, do you trust me? Oh, you've got to leave the land to get food, huh? Gee, that doesn't look too good. Are you going to trust me that this is your land eventually? That last point in the story when his wife dies, he doesn't own any land, he has to buy her a grave. Still doesn't own the land. What's the point of tension between the promise of the land and what's happening in his wife's death at her funeral? When Abraham and Isaac both get their wife in the harem of the Gentile king, what promise is at stake? The seed promise. See, all the stories, all these stories from here on out have something to do with one of these three things. That's why the Holy Spirit picked out those stories. Everyone has been preserved to show that Sarah gets delivered from the Gentile harem lest she produce the wrong seed. She must produce God's seed and she's not going to do it as the mistress of Pharaoh. She's going to do it as the wife of Abraham. But the intrigue is, how is this going to come about? And so, the, the exciting thing to think about in all this is it makes the Bible an adventure story. It's really a vast adventure story in Genesis. How is God who says to hell with me if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, how does this work out in the nitty-gritty of everyday life? One story after another, where it comes out, where it's suspense, just, just you're right on the edge. So suppose Pharaoh does take Sarah for his wife. Now what have we got? We screwed up the promise. What if the famine does last in the land and they can't get back in the land because they can't get their business, ranching business started in the middle of a famine? What happens to the land promise? So all those stories are tension stories. You're going to trust me? You're going to trust me? You're going to trust me or not? That's what they're all about. So we'll see that, and I hope that maybe unify your view when you read these. These are not discontinuous G.I. Wonder stories. It's like a, a sort of a weekly comic strip. One, it's one mess after another, all having to do with a covenant. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've condescended to show us the details of your sovereignty, of your omnipotence, of your love toward us, and most of all, your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to what you promised us in your word. And may our hearts be warmed and comforted 
by the faithfulness that stands behind these written words that we read, um, sometimes unappreciatively. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yes. Well, I think it, it guarantees the preservation of the human race. But the human race basically was ended in Noah's day. I mean, apart from the, from the Savior. And what God is saying is that no matter what judgment I make in the future, the human race will not be eradicated. This is a going entity. And that's why in the um, book of Revelation there's such a point, repetitively made by the way, Every time the throne is looked upon and they see the saved peoples, it's always peoples of every nation and every tongue. It's a, it's a reverberation of the table of nations. They've survived. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I didn't mean that. They, but even then, the Abraham Covenant would argue that the form of the new earth is remarkably similar to the form of our present planet. Yeah. Ah, that's a critical question for biblical theology. Um, that varies, Debbie, with the covenants, because clearly the, book, the author of the book of Hebrews is dealing with that problem, because he's got to deal with, well, this sections of the Mosaic covenant that went obsolete. So it's very clear that some sections of these covenants go obsolete. But what I want to stress when we get to the Mosaic covenant is its format is different than the Abrahamic covenant. Tonight, I made a big, big issue up here of saying that those pieces, when, when the signing happened, there was only one party that signed, not two. When you go to the Mosaic Law Code, both parties sign. So the Mosaic Law Code is grounded on the faithfulness of the people. And that's why at the end there's a cursing. The book of the, the Pentateuch ends with cursings on people. In Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, the most gruesome, grotesque, horrible cursings on the nation Israel and their maldiction oaths that Israel be damned if she doesn't obey that law and she was and the, the prophecies in those cursings include women eating their babies they were so hungry and that happened twice in history we know of that was recorded in Jewish history women ate their babies in 586 when Jerusalem was at siege because they were so hungry and they ate their babies again in 70 A.D. when the Roman armies encircled a town and starved them to death. So those cursings all came to pass, and the Mosaic Law Code has a different structure to it. So that's what we're going we're to get to that when we get into the law. So you have to watch it. There are, there are themes that carry on, and there are themes that are cut off. None of these that we covered tonight are cut off. These are eternal themes that are not, you know, don't stop.
Oh, as a result of a siege battle. It was a military situation where these people were just, just, uh, I mean, uh, Josephus tells about the people, they'd eat something, they're so tired, they'd, they'd beat you up in the street to pull the food out of your mouth. So, the, Yes, but it, it, it came about in line with the maledictions. And that's what we want to see. That, that I was talking before about this. The key in reading the Old Testament, getting a kick out of the Old Testament, is to see that the details of the stories fit this big program that's going on so eloquently. We were just discussing um, Pharaoh and, and Sarah. And... Uh, and the argument, I guess, a woman, woman would make is, well, wait a minute. I mean, gosh, it wasn't Sarah's problem. It was Abraham. I, this guy lied. And, and it's, that's right. He did. But see, the irony to that story. And see, in Sunday school, you always learn this story. And then you go to this story. And then you go to this story. And that's, we have to learn that way. All I'm saying is, don't leave it that way in your mind. Visualize them as beads on a necklace. They have a pattern. And so, yes... The neat thing was that she got herself, she, he, Abraham got his wife involved in a situation she shouldn't have had to have been involved in because he failed to trust the Lord in the first place. So he fails to trust the Lord. He lies because he's afraid. So then his lie gets his wife down into this thing where now the promise of God really looks like it's going to, oops. And then it's, it's not up to Abraham. Clearly, Abraham isn't going to do any delivering now. Now, if there's any resolution to this crisis that occurs, it's got to be God that does it. And who does it? God does it. And so, who's vindicated? Not Abraham. God is. Who signed the covenant? God did. Whose word was it to be faithful? God's word. No word in there about Abraham being faithful. It was God to be faithful. That's the emphasis. And that's why these stories, you have cheating, you have incest, you have any social thing that you can have. That's what's on TV now. You know, the big thing, Genesis. Everybody's talking about Genesis. And they're surprised. Gee, it's real. Just like real life today. No kidding. People breathed oxygen then too. Just like we do. And so, the stories have the foulness of real fallen humanity. But the grandeur of the story is that God's promises abide forever. So that's what's so encouraging. I always love to read the Old Testament for my own encouragement because when I fall, when I stumble, you know, you pick yourself up and it's all, you're dirty and, you, uh, and, and Satan will often convince you that you're the first person to ever do this. And nobody else, does. You know, all the other Christians are doing fine. You know, just the stuff's dumping down on you, that's all. God's picking on me. And it's so refreshing to see that these guys had the same problems and you want, to, you want to have a gross contest? Hey, read the pages of Scripture. But it's not, it's not exalting the grossness. It's showing it for what it is. It's a mess. And it answers a more profound question. Why? And it ultimately boils down to the fact Abraham and then his son, Isaac, does it worse. Jacob does it worse. And so by the fourth generation, where are they? In captivity. A complete dismantling of a family. So, the argument of the book of Genesis is the first family can't even make it. Think about it. They can't make it. They can't make it on their own. There's three generations and everyone's the worst than the one went before. 
So how is the seed of Abraham ever to be saved? Because God's going to send them down to Egypt for a little training session. And then when they come out, they at least learn a few lessons from that experience. Now, if that isn't a picture of sanctification, I don't know what is. That's real life spiritually. And that's what I find intriguing about the Bible. These are all neat adventure stories. And I just, your heart yearns for some dramatist, some cinematographer. You know, somebody of the order of what's his name that does such neat stuff with the Empire. Um, well, the Jewish guy, I can't think of his name. Spielberg. I mean, somebody like Spielberg, please come along and put these stories in a theological context where they, they, the grandeur of the story shows. And, I mean, they'd be bestsellers. You've got all the stuff that people like, but underneath it, you've got something else that is a big surprise. So, it's, it's, it's ripe. It's just so made for a dramatist to do something with. And I, I frankly have been a lot disappointed by some of the stuff that you see. Guys try to do it, and it just kind of comes off like it's, it's vanilla compared to what it really goes on here. You know, get some you know, actors and actresses that really can do these parts and some screenwriter that can really put it together. The problem is Hollywood doesn't have any screenwriters with theological perception to put it together. That's, that's the problem. So uh, it, would be, it would be just a wonderful, wonderful series uh, to do. Anybody got a $5 million or something to start? <laughs> oh, we got to go because the time's up. Yes, definitely. It's, it is a symbol of God, but it's God making an oath. It was used, we know contextually, those two, those two words were used when you had priests, um, almost witches in some cases, um, putting an oath or a curse on somebody. So it's a picture of self-maldiction. And it's a very powerful picture, and that's why, if you, if you don't read it that way, your eye goes down over that text, and you see that strange verse that says, a great fear of darkness fell on Abraham. And that's not the picture of nice, peaceful light. And He's upset. There's a, a sense of profound horror that accompanies this, like a cold, chilly nightmare that happens there. Why? This is God assuring us something. It's the cold hillness that reeks through that text because of the intensity of the curse that we see there. It's a horror. It's an, it's an uncontemplatable horror of God cursing himself. So it's a very powerful thing to get started with in the Old Testament.